continuing with our series on principles for Christian political engagement. Everybody said yes. Uh, if you are visiting with us for the first time today, uh, please know that I am not preaching this message out of any partisan uh, intentions, but simply to share basic principles on how Christians should engage with government and politics. Uh, I know that many get uncomfortable with politics being discussed in church. I, I know that a lot of people feel like politics should actually be an off-limits topic in church. Uh, but I would like to just respectfully suggest that I believe that that is a wrong way of thinking about it. And here's the reason that it's a wrong way to think about it. Because there is simply no area of life that Christians can say to God, Hey God, that area is just for me. You God don't have anything to do with that area of my life. I shared last week, borrowing from uh, Abraham Kuyper, uh, who is quoted as saying this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And that includes our politics. Our politics are not ours, they're God's. And so I feel like we really have to talk about politics in church. Much of last week's message was an explanation of why our politics matter and why it should be talked about, why we should engage in politics as believers. And so if you weren't here last week, weren't able to hear that, I would encourage you to listen. Uh, you can find the message on our website, our Facebook page, or our YouTube uh, channel. We are now an online powerhouse thanks to COVID-19. Just everywhere, literally everywhere. Dozens of views. Dozens. Uh, I do want to quickly mention from last week that uh, foundational principles guiding Christian political involvement uh, should be these. That our highest allegiance is to Christ in his kingdom. Just, just throughout our political lives, that has to remain true. Our highest allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom. And the second is that the two greatest commandments, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, should always be at the forefront of our thinking about our political engagement. And from these foundational principles, we discover two obligations to our fellow man. We discover an obligation to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus and we discover an obligation to work for the good of our fellow man in every area of life. In other words, we have obligations both to the eternal and temporal well-being of our fellow man. And I shared last week that in the area of the temporal well-being of our fellow man, and really even as it relates to our freedom to share the gospel, government has such power for either good or evil, that Christians simply cannot abdicate our responsibility to influence the government for good. There is too much that is at stake. Government impacts human flourishing to too great of an extent to simply sit on the sidelines and not 
participate. And this is especially true when we live in a country that has a participatory form of government where we have the legal right to influence our government. And so today I want to have us consider in a little more detail how Christians should engage with government. And Christians have a lot of different viewpoints about that. You can find Christians where almost their entire focus is in the political realm. And you can find Christian churches who think that believers in churches should not be involved in politics at all. It spans the entire uh, gamut of, uh, of thinking. It's very common currently to have Christians sort of speaking negatively about any partisan involvement at all in order for us to maintain our prophetic voice to all sides of the political realm and to speak truth to power wherever it needs spoken. Now, I agree with that in principle, and yet I can't help but note that these voices almost always become much more active when their own political preferences are not being represented in the highest political offices. You may have noticed this. Conservative Christians seem to suddenly find their prophetic voice when they disagree with the people who hold the highest offices. And more liberal Christians seem to find their prophetic voice when someone more conservative holds the office. Have, have you noticed this tendency? Yes, a few of you have. It is important, believers, that we always be willing to call out whatever we consider our own side when our own side errs. That, that is an important thing. I think that it's probably better for us, though, as believers in 2020, to not so much fancy ourselves as prophets, but to embrace something much more modest, which is that we are all simply engaging in politics and voting for and advocating for people that we think have the policies that best serve the interest of our fellow man. And then with that much more modest approach, then give each other a lot of grace on those occasions when we see those things differently. Otherwise, we just end up with a lot of self-proclaimed prophets screaming at each other. I want to acknowledge that with what I share today, I'm borrowing very liberally from the book Politics According to the Bible by one of my favorite theologians, Wayne Grudem. In fact, the first two sections of your outline, I don't normally do this, but the first two sections of your sermon outline today, the main points listed, listed there are borrowed directly from Grudem. And I want to give a disclaimer before we go further. Today's message holds the potential to feel more like a classroom lecture than a sermon. And I, I'm comfortable with this. I'm comfortable with this. I think it's okay. But I just wanted to warn you about it so that you're not too distracted by it because I know that you're accustomed to the nonstop thrill ride that most of my sermons are. So 
just so you're not distracted. Like, why is this not as thrilling as normal? I just wanted to acknowledge it. So, you guys laugh at the oddest times. I tell jokes, you laugh, I say something serious, or you don't laugh, I say something serious, you laugh. It's, it's odd. So, all right. So Grudem shares five wrong views about Christians and government and politics according to the Bible. I agree with him, and so I want to share those with you today. Some I'm going to briefly mention and move on, and then a couple we'll look a little more closely at. So five wrong views about Christians and government. The first wrong view is that government should compel religion. Throughout human history, this approach has actually been very widely practiced, and probably the most dominant uh, way of practicing government and religion through most of human history. It's still practiced in some countries today. Saudi Arabia would be an example of such a country. Uh, In the early years of the United States, support for religious freedom increased because the American colonies understood that they needed to form a united country with people from differing religious backgrounds, and because many of the colonists themselves had fled from religious persecution in their home countries. In addition to that very brief little little touch on history, the Bible offers much support for the view uh, that government compelling religion is an incorrect approach to uh, government and religion. When Jesus said to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's in Romans 13, he established the broad outlines of a new way of doing things where the things that are God's are not to be under the control of the civil government. Additional biblical evidence that government compelling religion is an incorrect view includes things like Jesus refused to compel people to believe in him. Genuine faith cannot be forced in the kingdom of God. While it absolutely impacts this world, the kingdom of God is not a worldly or an earthly kingdom. There are no major Christian groups today of which I'm aware that hold the view that government should compel religion. It is an incorrect view. And one implication of this being an incorrect view is that Christians should support religious freedom for everybody. Christians and non-Christians, we should support it for everybody. Several years ago, it was reported that a Buddhist temple, an educational facility, was considering moving into Pataskala. I was actually excited about it because they were supposed to have a restaurant there, and, uh, and I was kind of interested in that. Uh, but, uh, but, but many Christians in Pataskala became very upset, and, and I understood that. I'm, I'm not tra- meaning to be overly critical of this, but, but they wanted the city to prevent it from happening. Now, I'm not sure why it didn't end up happening. I've, I've lost that part of the story. But I can tell you that Christians really should not have opposed that. And here's why. Because if we want religious liberty then we need to honor the religious liberty of others. The kingdom of God is not going to be thwarted because a Buddhist temple moves into Pataskala. It's just not. 
The second wrong view of Christians and government is that government should exclude religion. Government shouldn't compel religion, but it shouldn't exclude it either. Now, there are many groups today that try to advance this view. The ACLU, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, and honestly, much of secular society functionally promotes this view. But it remains wrong. No matter how many people promote it, it remains wrong. And there are many reasons that this view is wrong. One, it changes freedom of religion into freedom from all religious influence. It's clearly not a part of our founding documents. It has no basis whatsoever from anything within the history of the United States. You don't need any more proof than to look at the money that's in your wallet or your purse, which still says, in God we trust. John Adams said, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, and I believe we're starting to see that he was right. George Washington said, religion and morality are the essential pillars of civil society. This wrong view, this view is wrong because it overrides the will of the people. Most of the people in the United States are at least nominally, it's often only nominally, but at least nominally religious. And this view is wrong because it restricts both freedom of religion and freedom of speech. It's wrong for a whole host of other reasons that I'm not going to take the time to go through today. Wrong views about Christians and government. Government should compel religion. Government should exclude religion. And here's the third one. All government is evil and demonic. I understand if you are tempted to say amen. <laughs> but you would be wrong. You would be wrong. Those who take this view often reference Luke 4, 6, where Satan tempted Jesus and offered him all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would simply worship him. Of course, it needs to be noted, Satan was lying. He did not have all the kingdoms of the world to give. He was lying. Everything he says is a lie. They were not his to give. Christians often refer to Satan as the ruler of this present age, the ruler of this present world world system, and, and there is truth to that. I'm not saying those are wrong things to say. I, I say them myself. It's true that Satan's influence is pervasive in the world. His fingerprints are found anywhere you find evil, including in government. But it simply is not true to say that all government is evil and demonic. You cannot find biblical support for that. In fact, the biblical evidence points in the opposite direction. Let's look at just a few examples. Daniel 4, 17. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives, to, gives it to whom he will. And here's a discouraging part of the verse. And sets over it the lowliest of men. 
Doesn't that often seem to be true? And yet, God sets the rulers in place. Romans 13, 1 through 6. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Get, get this next line. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Let me say it twice, Paul says. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. By the way, Nero was the emperor when Paul wrote this. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right. You'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Don't just do it because you might be punished. Do it because it's the right thing to do. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. That's pretty straightforward, friends. And I think if you look at it, there's a little bit of debate about this. But I think if you look at it, Nero hadn't quite gone full Nero at this point when, when Paul wrote this. But let's just say it was still Nero. It's worse than anything any of us have been dealing with, okay? For the last four years or the eight before that, like, it was Nero. And yet this is what Paul wrote. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. To every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So the Bible is very clear about this, friends. God is sovereign over the rulers of earthly kingdoms and Christians are to submit themselves to the governing authorities. It is simply not true that all government is evil and demonic, it is true that civil government is established by God to punish evil, to promote order and safety for the good of all people, for the good of citizens. Now, it goes beyond what I want to talk about today, but there are limits to obeying civil authorities. And I'll just say, essentially... We reach the limit of obedience to civil authorities when, they, when what they require of us comes in conflict with what God requires of us. So when a civil authority tries to usurp the place of highest allegiance in our lives, that is the point, generally speaking, uh, where we begin to say, okay, hold on, can't continue uh, to cooperate with that. But short of that, we as believers are to be cooperative, supportive, obedient to civil authorities. 
governments can be evil, but all government isn't evil and demonic. In fact, government is God-ordained for our good. The fourth wrong view about Christians in government is one we covered pretty well last week. Do evangelism, not politics. Do evangelism, not politics. Matthew 29, 22-39 instructs us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's the second of the two greatest commandments. And as I shared last week, Government has such a profound impact on citizens for good or evil that part of loving our neighbors as ourselves has to include trying to influence government for good. And so let me make, uh, let me briefly mention a few other points here. Do evangelism, not politics, promotes too narrow of a view of the gospel in the kingdom of of God. Now, let me say, I am the first to say that evangelism is our highest priority. At least it should be. But the gospel is supposed to be good news for all of life, not just the life to come. In the Great Commission, Jesus instructed believers to teach converts, all I have commanded you. Jesus and the Bible as a whole have things to say about all of life. Not just salvation and going to heaven. Those are the most important topics. But Jesus wants to change our whole lives. Including how we live in the here and now. The gospel isn't just about saving people for eternity. It is about transforming society now. Grudem asks a a great question. He says that do evangelism, not politics, begs the question, which parts of the Bible should we not preach and teach about? It's a great question. If all we're to do is evangelism, what do we do with the rest of the Bible that talks about things other than evangelism? Do we ignore that? The truth is, We're responsible to our fellow man for both their eternal well-being and their temporal well-being. One of the things that often gets cited in this uh, do evangelism, not politics wrong view is some Christians cite their expectation of coming persecution as evidence that we should just opt out of the political arena and prepare for the persecution But the only loving response to our fellow man, I think, is to try to influence government for good for as long as we can. We might lose that ability sometime. The persecution may come and we may be marginalized someday to the point where we really don't have much ability to influence government. But unless or until that happens... We should try to influence government for good. Some say that engagement in government and politics is a distraction from gospel proclamation. But Grudem shares with us that the proper question we uh, should ask, uh, shares what the proper question is that we should ask. He writes, the proper question is not, does political influence take resources away from evangelism, but is political influence something God has called us to do? 
I believe the answer to that question, I believe that the biblical answer is yes. God has called us to do that as much as we are able to do it. The fifth wrong view about Christians and government is do politics, not evangelism. Now, I hope that we don't need to spend any time on that one because we're not going to. It is self-evidently wrong. Though I do feel to say one thing about it. If politics occupies all of our time and evangelism none of our time, then even if we reject this view, functionally we are living this view. And that ought not to be. So evaluate yourself. Do you incessantly talk about politics, never about reaching the lost for Jesus? What, what, like what motivates you the most? Politics or reaching someone with the gospel? a little tough I, I admit politics occupies a lot of my thoughts I think it does a lot of you Whew, got quiet <laughs> so quiet it ought not to be so these are five wrong views about Christians and government considering the counsel of the Bible what view should we have? Grudem provides, I think, a much better view grounded in the counsel of Scripture. It's a view that I wholeheartedly believe. The better view about Christians and government is that there should be significant Christian influence on government. Not compelling religion, but significant Christian influence on government. And so let's just look at a little bit. There's more, but let's look at just a little bit of biblical support for this viewpoint. First of all, let's consider some Old Testament examples that commend this view. The Jewish prophet Daniel exercised strong influence over the secular government in Babylon. Here's what Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian ruler, in Daniel 4.27. O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel called a heathen king to reject sin and practice righteousness, to reject iniquity and show mercy. What would advocates of modern multiculturalism have said to King Nebuchadnezzar? What would Christian advocates of yielding the public square to secular forces have said to King Nebuchadnezzar? Probably something like this. O King Nebuchadnezzar, I am a Jewish prophet, but I would not presume to impose my Jewish moral standards on your Babylonian kingdom. Ask your astronomers and soothsayers what you should do. They will guide you in your own traditions. 
and then follow your heart, it would not be my place to tell you what is right and wrong for you. But that's not what Daniel did. Daniel spoke truth to power. Daniel influenced the Babylonian government for good. In Jeremiah 29 and 7, which we considered last week, Jeremiah encouraged the Jewish people who had been carried into Babylonian captivity to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. They were not in their own country. They had been carried away into captivity, and God wanted his people to influence the place that they had been carried for good. You see, here's the truth. A country will prosper as its governmental laws and policies align with the moral principles in the Bible. And a country will be harmed when its policies are contrary to God's teachings. This applies to any country, Christian or not, because God created everything that is and he is the ruler over all. He tells us to live the way he tells us to live because that's what contributes to human flourishing. And so you're not imposing anything on anyone other than what the God who created everything knows is in their best interest when you bring Christian values and morality to bear on government. The example of Joseph and his ascension to the second highest political office in all of Egypt is yet another example. Old Testament example of God's people having significant influence on government. Joseph said to his brothers, and if you haven't read this story in a while, you should go read it. It's a fascinating, amazing story that's in the Bible. Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 45, 8, listen to this. Remember, his brothers had sold him into slavery. He was in Egypt because his brothers had mistreated him, abandoned him, and sold him into slavery. And Joseph said to his brothers, it is not you who sent me here. Of course it is, Joseph. Of course it's them. They wronged you. They sinned against you. They sold you into slavery. But Joseph didn't see it that way. Joseph said, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then he says, why God sent him there? He made me, listen to this, father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. It's amazing. Christian influence on government. Joseph was a blessing to the Egyptian people because he prepared them for famine. He was a blessing to people who were not his people. And he was a blessing to the Jewish people. And he preserved their lives. So God put Joseph in a position of authority in a, in a, in, in a secular uh, government, a government that was not of the people of God, for the blessing of his own people and for the blessing of that entire nation for those who followed after God and for those who did not he was a blessing to all of them our involvement in government our involvement in politics 
is absolutely for the good of our own family and friends. I said this last week, why should we retreat from the public square? Our kids and grandkids have to live here. Just because persecution might come doesn't mean we have to cheer it on. But we also, as we influence our city, our state, our nation in godly ways, we are a blessing to our fellow citizens. Even those who don't realize we're a blessing to them. And even those who consider our presence unwelcome in the public square. The Old Testament gives examples. The New Testament gives examples of Christian influence on government. For the sake of time, I'm just going to mention one. John the Baptist is an example of influence on a governing authority. The ruler of Galilee during the time of John the Baptist was Herod Antipas. And Matthew 14, 3 and 4 tells us of John rebuking Herod for personal sin in his life. Here's what it says. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Some things you just shouldn't have to say. But he had to say it. Luke 3, 18 through 20 actually gives us more context to that story. Here's what it says. When John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. The added context is that John wasn't only rebuking Herod for taking his brother's wife, but for all the other evil things he had done. There is no doubt that within that, all the other evil things he had done included many evil actions that he had carried out as a governing official of the Roman Empire. And yet, John brought influence to bear on the governing authority. We see the people of God influencing government in the Old Testament. We see the people of God bringing influence to bear on governing officials in the New Testament. We've already seen Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 today. The, the mere existence of these passages is, is, uh, uh, and the, the, what they teach about government, I think, can be an argument for us being involved in government. There is no doubt that God placed these passages in the Bible to inform us as to how we should relate to civil government. We know the better view of Christians in government is that Christians should exert significant influence on government because we see these examples in the Old Testament, the New Testament, teachings of Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and finally, the form of government that we live in in the United States places responsibility on us to influence government. Here's why. We talked about it last week. Our system of government invites everyone to influence the government. A significant portion of the ruling power of government in the United States is entrusted to citizens through the ballot box. To not bring Christian influence on government in a country and system of government where everyone gets to influence the government would be a gross abdication of our responsibility to work for the good of our fellow man. And so I encourage you, VCC, 
to reject wrong views about Christians and government. Here's the ones that I think are the greatest temptation for us. It is that government is evil, so we should just not be involved, and that we should only do evangelism and not engage politically. But because our highest allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom, because the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves, because of our obligations to both the eternal and temporal well-being of our fellow man, and because of government's ability to impact either positively or negatively the the temporal well-being of our fellow man, we should reject the wrong views about Christians and government. We should embrace the better view that we should bring significant influence to bear on our government. We absolutely should engage politically. When we fail to do this, we deprive government of the clear moral compass that Christian influence can provide. A moral compass that is in the best interest of our fellow man, again, whether they realize it and appreciate it or not. So we should engage politically, but how should we engage? What should we do? The short answer is that we should pray and then engage in every way our system of government allows us to engage. So first, let's pray. Let's talk about pray. I said first, let's pray. I was afraid you were going to erupt in prayer. I uh, need to see what time it is. Oh, we're doing great. I can keep talking for a while. So first, let's talk about prayer. Friends, our country at the present moment is an absolute mess. Have you noticed this? I think it's crystal clear that we're more divided than we've been since the 60s. Many people are saying that arguably we're more divided than at any time since the Civil War. And in fact, people are talking about a cold civil war. And in some quarters, you even find people expressing fear that uh, you know, it could erupt into actual civil war. And, and, and I guess with some of the things we see on the news, you could say in a localized way, that's kind of happening. The problems facing our nation are immense. COVID-19, the challenges of the virus itself, then on top of that, the uh, politicization of the response to the virus, which is creating even more division in our country, the racial unrest that we're seeing in our country, and the fact that there are legitimate issues of racism that our nation truly needs to address, yet mixed into the appeal for racial justice are groups that many folks believe are simply using racial justice as a cover for their real objective, which is that they don't like Western liberal democracy. And they'd like to see it torn down and something else built in its place. So something that should be fairly easy to be unified on, racial justice, actually becomes something that creates deeper divisions. And in large part, it's because we can't have honest dialogue. On the one hand, some people are being told, to shut up and accept everything I say or you're a racist. On the other hand, 
other people are saying, I won't listen to any legitimate complaint you have because some people who are on your side have ulterior motives that I don't like. And of course, neither of those are right responses. Those are both horribly wrong responses. We have a runaway national debt, totally unsustainable. Nobody ever talks about this anymore, <laughs> at least not very often. I don't, I, I mean, I'm no economist. I, I mean, at some point, I'm just going to have to say, yeah, we're not paying that, I assume, because I don't know how you ever pay that back. <laughs> Our, uh, <laughs> I, we declare bankruptcy. <laughs> That's an office reference for those of you who like the office. And don't judge me because I do. <laughs> All right. Our medical system is a mess. A uh, relatively routine surgery my wife had a couple years ago. Just the hospital bill. Not the doctor. I don't think the anesthesiologist was included in this part of it. Just the hospital bill. I think she was there two days. One night, I think. Just the hospital bill. $67,000. Insane. I don't have the answers. I, I, I really don't. It's a horribly complicated topic. It's insane. Problems. Colleges are at the point where I think it's fair to say they're charging way more than their product is worth. But to get ahead, families and young adults feel they have no choice but to pay the cost, incur huge amounts of debt. Also, administrative staffs can just keep on growing and virtual palaces can continue to be built. My son <laughs> moved down to the, Aaron moved down to Ohio State campus area to finish his last couple years of college and I barely recognized the place since, uh, since my three months there. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, uh, I barely recognize it. I mean, the buildings look like palaces. It's amazing. While there have been lessening in numbers and legislative advances that have been welcomed, we're still aborting hundreds of thousands of innocent human babies every year. About half of our politicians now openly support abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy, and in some cases even beyond the moment of birth. And of course, those politicians who support that also want the rest of us to pay for it. We now live in a nation where a national television talk show host openly laments gender reveal parties because the baby hasn't yet chosen its gender. Wrap your mind around that. I love our country but it's a mess. It is a mess. We need to pray. We need to pray. Look, I, I'm never going to criticize someone for sharing your views on Facebook. I do it. I, I'm not even going to be too hard on you for occasionally getting a little too passionate. I do as well. I do as well. But friends, if all we're doing is spewing our opinions on Facebook and we're never praying about any of these things, what are we doing what are we doing? We have to make these matters of prayer. Make them matters of prayer. So we need to pray, and then we need to vote. Every Christian who is eligible to vote needs to do so. 
And I encourage you, we need to vote at all levels of government, local, state, and national. So much of the energy, so much of the time gets devoted to national politics that we neglect the positive influence for good we can, can have at the local and the state level. And so we need to do this at all levels of government. Beyond voting, we need to advocate, I believe, for issues and candidates. Try to persuade people toward policies and candidates that best serve the common good and best promote policies that contribute to human flourishing. I believe, some of you may disagree with me, and that's fine. This is not something we have to agree on. But I believe it's okay to join organizations and even political parties that you believe have the best vision for policies that contribute to the well-being of individuals and the nation as a whole. It's okay to invest some of your money in candidates and issues that you think will make a positive difference. All of us can and, do, uh, uh, can and should do the things that I just mentioned. Not all of us will be called to do the next thing I want to mention, but some of us may be called to this and we haven't realized it yet. And if you ever sense a calling to this, you believe that God is behind it, I hope that you'll say yes. Believers need to be serving at every level of government. City council, school board, county commissioners, state representatives, state senators, and yes, national offices as well. Now let me acknowledge something. I understand many believers already serve at various levels of government. I also understand that some of them serve with excellence. There's no doubt about that. But our country's a mess. And so perhaps we might need more and different Christians <laughs> serving than what we currently have. Some of us here today have the capabilities, the giftings to serve in these ways. And if you do, and if God calls you to it, I encourage you to respond to the call. We need more Daniels and Josephs who allow God to place them into places of influence so that they can work for the good of their families, the people of God, and for the good of all the people that God has placed them to serve. So I appeal again, reject the wrong views about Christians and government, embrace the better view that Christians should have significant influence on government, and then engage. Pray, vote, advocate, and serve. There's another important aspect of how Christians should engage in politics. We should engage respectfully and civilly. And that's going to be our entire focus next Sunday, engaging respectfully and civilly. Right.